Full as always, perfect. Um, I thank each of you. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 19. And um, we're not going to read it over today. We'll go through it verse by verse. Uh, But just as a recap of what happened last week, um, as you recall, Abraham in chapter 18 was kind of having a siesta, uh, resting after his day of work. And then all of a sudden these three people, as far as he can tell at the time, are coming toward him. And so in a bit of hospitality, he runs to them and then he offers them some time for rest. Um, As time goes on, the conversation keeps going and he realizes, okay, this is definitely not your average typical mill wanderers or vagabonds. Instead, this is God with at least two angels. Um, And so eventually the two angels depart and Abraham is left alone with God. And for the first time in recorded history, we have a man going before God. Now, this doesn't mean that God didn't talk to humans before. He had. He had talked to Cain. He talked to Adam and Eve. He talked to um, Noah. But in all those circumstances, it was always God going, and it was always him being the first to engage. Here, however, we have Abraham being the one to engage God, who goes before God. And... um, In that instance, he asks God about what he has learned concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, that God is going to judge these people depending on what he finds in the cities. And so Abraham intercedes on behalf of all the people. Um, We notice he doesn't intercede on behalf of Lot, per se. Um, He intercedes on behalf of the whole cities. Now we're going to find um, what happens with the two angels when they left. So here we go. Verses 1 through 3. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. In the previous section, we found how Abraham was told the secret knowledge of God's will concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. The conversation which transpired between God and Abraham, and there was little evidence that the two were with the Lord when there was that time. Now, however, we find that the two with the Lord were, in fact, angels. They were, in fact, part of uh, the spiritual identity. It seems likely that the angels did not walk all the distance from Mamre, which is where Abraham was, to Sodom, as that distance would have taken longer than that evening time. We can only surmise that they came to Sodom in the evening through supernatural means. Uh, It is at this time we consider Lot for the first time since his salvation uh, from the hands of the eastern kings. Abraham went and saved him during that time. And we learn a few things, don't we? The first is Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom. For those who might remember when we went through the book of Ruth, it was at the gate of a city where much of um, the delineation took place, so to speak, or much of the legalization took place. For Lot to be there then implies that he had some status within the city. He was, in some respect, respected. We also learn of Lot's response to the angels, and that is a similar response Abraham had in the previous chapter when he first saw the Lord with his angels. Lot shows hospitality by bowing his face to the earth. 
As we remember, hospitality was an important cultural custom in the ancient Near East. Uh, and it remains one to this day. If you were to go over there, you'd find that out. He not only does this by bowing, but also in what he says. He beckons them to his own house for the evening. Such a request was customary during this time period, and it would have been the response of the guest to respond graciously, to say, yes, we will stay with you. But as it is, they are on a mission to find out if the sin of Sodom is as great as it seems. So they say that they will instead spend the night in the town square, the city center. Despite their rejection, Lot persists. As the text says, he pressed them strongly. This is the mixture of strongly urging and twisting their arm to accept his hospitality. Um, Ultimately, he convinces them to stay with him for the evening as they entered into his house. We notice that he does the same thing as Abraham again. Uh, Abraham offered them something simple, a morsel and some water, and then proceeded to give them a feast. Now, Lot offered a place to rest, to wash their feet, and then gives him or them a feast of his own. That there was baked unleavened bread implies that the meal was quickly put together, though quickly put together does not imply it lacked, as the word feast here means exactly what it means. Thus, the meal is provided, and they all enjoy and they eat together. Um, Though we do notice that in Abraham's story, Abraham did not eat of the feast. He sat back and he um, was a servant. It doesn't say that about Lot here. Alrighty, so now we come to verses 4 through 11. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with worse with you than with them. Then they, pres- they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. If the goal of the angels were to gauge the circumstances in Sodom and Gomorrah, then consider it a success. Before they even lay down for sleep, the city is stirred. The men of the city come to Lot's door. We notice how specific it is described. The men of the city, young and old, all the people. If in the previous intercession by Abraham concerning there being even a few righteous in the city, it is at this point we wonder if any will rise up. Unfortunately, this is not the case. They come to Lot and request him to bring out the angels who the people think of as men in order for them to know them. This kind of terminology is used in Genesis predominantly as a euphemism for intercourse, though it could also mean simple knowledge. Uh, Unfortunately, as the events unfold, we find the men of Sodom are truly looking to have sexual relations with the angels. Lot, being the hospitable host, goes out to the townsmen. 
Indeed, we see how he shuts the door after him, thus blocking the men from entering into the house. It is here that Lot makes an appeal as well as an offer. The appeal is for the men to not go against the norm of hospitality. During the time period, again, it was wicked to treat guests in such a way. Not only in Israel when it became a nation, uh, but in many other nations as well. Thus, when Lot hears this, he recognized the inhospitality as an evil thing. So he offers instead his own daughters to the men. To this we would all find it quite absurd. How is it that Lot can so easily offer up his own daughters, his own virgin daughters, to the men of Sodom? How is it not wicked that he would so readily offer his daughters for the men of the city to do as they pleased, as he himself says? It ultimately lies in the end of his response. These men have come under his roof for shelter. He feels obligated to protect them, to keep them safe from the men of the city um, for the sake of hospitality, to offer his own daughters for this reason. Still, every one of us, and likely even the original readers, would and should be shocked over this offer as it shows just how depraved the city was and just how far Lot would be willing to go to keep himself and his guests safe. The men of the city, however, will not accept the offer presented by Lot. Instead, they tell him to stand back, or as we would say, get out of our way. This is merely a prelude to the verbal assault Lot experiences. While he had previously called them brothers, a kindness in order to appease wrath, here they call him nothing more than a sojourner, an immigrant. Indeed, they see him as judging them for their behavior. That he called their deeds wickedness infuriates them and leads them to say that they will deal even more harshly with Lot than those inside of Lot's house. So they assault Lot physically. Despite Lot's attempt to keep them from the door and away from the men inside, they come to the door in order to break it down. All seems lost for Lot, his family, and the men inside. All the men of Sodom are far too overwhelming for Lot. But all is not lost. The angels, not described as, now described as men, reached out and grabbed Lot um, from the outside, bringing him back inside. They save Lot by shutting the door behind him. This is similar to how God uh, shut the door of the ark before the arrival of the flood. Now Lot is safely inside the house, but there is still a problem with the men outside. At this point, the men in the house reveal themselves by striking the men outside with blindness. Whether this is physical blindness or some kind of spiritual or psychological blindness, we're not sure. Um, It seems likely physical as the men continue to grope outside the door. We notice despite the light, they continued on for a while trying to fulfill their sinful desires. Despite the power of the angels, which should have caused them a moment of reflection at least, they simply continued forward. Thus we find further evidence of the depravity of the men of Sodom, as even in their blindness they grope for what they want until they simply wear themselves out. Now we come to verses 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, Have you... Anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, 
Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So once the door is shut, the men, though we have seen repeatedly throughout this narrative, we know more is involved than just men, that they're actually angels. They speak to Lot. They tell Lot to go to his family members to get them out of the city. This is, again, reminiscent of the flood story with Noah, how Noah is to bring his family with him into the ark, so Lot is to spare his family by going to them. What is the reason for taking them out of the city? The answer is that destruction is surely to come to Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels have been given instructions to destroy the city because of the outcry against its people has become great. God is going to destroy Sodom because of its people's sins. The judge of all creation is going to judge the cities for their wickedness. Lot, upon hearing this, went out to his sons-in-law. That we are told who were to marry his daughters imply that they, uh, sons-in-law were betrothed to his daughters. Despite likely being individuals who were blinded and who should have by this point turned in repentance from their sins after such a display, they still reject the offer of salvation. Indeed, Lot warns them of the impending judgment which is about to befall the city, but instead of acknowledging him, they ignore him as a jester. So it comes to this. Despite the miraculous display, despite the warnings, the men of the city would rather dwell in their sin, their immorality, their depravity, than escape the judgment to come. All right. The main point of these verses are for us to find out the answer to two questions. The first concerns whether the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah are true outcries. The second is, are there even ten righteous in the city? The answer to both of these questions are found within this text. We find the harsh reality of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they revel in their sin and show their gross immorality. Because of this, the angels inform Lot that the judgment is coming. All right. Thus far in Genesis, we have seen cases in which the human heart is, as the prophet says, deceitful above all things. Whether it be Adam, Eve, Cain, the Noah generation, the Babylonians. Um, in the story of the generation of Noah especially, we find individuals who are willing to do whatever they could for the sake of power, even binding themselves to dark realms in a mixture of spiritual and physical, which God had forbidden in the end. Indeed, the wickedness and unnatural state humanity strove for was worthy of judgment, and that's exactly what happened in the flood. In today's text, we see much of the same. While the people of Sodom are not necessarily giving into the demonic powers of Noah's generation, these individuals still pursue that which is abominable in the eyes of God, which is unrighteousness, injustice, and immorality. They do this through their wickedness against Lot and the men who were angels. Yet it isn't only shown here. When we consider how the angels blinded the men, Causing them to grope around, we find individuals who continue to strive against the warnings given to them. By that point, they should have been fearful of retribution. They should have fallen prone on their faces in horror of potential judgment. They should have turned toward repentance. Instead, however, we find them continuing to grope in the darkness for that which their heart desires, immorality, 
Thus they saw immorality even when all the signs against them were made evident. Things have not changed so much in our own time. The truth is we find immorality, unrighteousness, and injustice today. In our own culture, we have found abortion continue to trend at an estimated 3,000 a day. When we consider human trafficking in 2018, we have approximately 8,542 trafficking reports this year alone. Of those, 6,081 are related to sex trafficking. When we consider the FBI report in 2017, we find that there were 1,247,321 reported violent crimes, which includes murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Likewise, there were over 7.5 million property crimes and over 5.5 million larceny theft crimes. Notice, none of these include the undocumented cases. And these do not include all the crimes committed in the U.S., nor do they show all of what we would call immoral practices, which the U.S. might not consider immoral, but according to the scriptures are immoral, such as homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, necrophilia, the like. And this doesn't even include the rest of the world. These also... um, And ultimately, if we were to include the world stats on these things, that number would grow. All the numbers would grow tremendously if we were to address those statistics. If we were also to include those who are accused who are innocent in our own culture as well as others, that's also something which is serious. But what is the point in this? The point is this. Humanity has a problem when it comes to immorality. When it comes to breaking not only the laws we impose on ourselves via our various governments, but most importantly, the law of God. When it comes to the final judgment, it will not be our American standards which we will face down. No, the standard we will face is of God's holy and righteous and just character. Thus, many of us can rightly say, well, I've never committed those crimes. The problem with the judgment of God, however, is that each one of us has committed crimes against him and his law. One of my favorite exercises, to myself anyway, is to ask how many times I've broken the Ten Commandments. And we've done this before. But I want to ask everyone to raise their hand if they have done one of the following. And I'm just going to keep my hand up because I've done them all. Have you ever placed something in your life above God? Have you ever worshipped an image rather than God? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever forgotten the Sabbath? Have you ever failed to honor your father and mother? Have you ever murdered? I'm going to keep my hand up there because Jesus says that if you hate your brother, it's as though you murdered him in your heart. God counts that as murder. Have you ever committed adultery? Jesus includes lusting as adultery. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever borne false witness? Not just lying, but in court. Have you ever coveted after your neighbor? When it comes to the law and the prophets, Christ hung it all on two commandments, though. So the question is, have you ever failed to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Have you ever failed to love your neighbor as yourself? 
Indeed, all of us could say we've failed in these ways. All of us could say that we have not glorified God to the fullest of our abilities and have missed the mark, fallen into sin on many occasions. Many will say to themselves, however, Yes, but I'm not that bad. I've done good things. I'm an overall good person. After all, the person next to me isn't that great either. I'm sure I've been better than them. Well, here's the problem according to Romans 9. Consider what Paul says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In these verses, we all stand condemned before the mighty and powerful God of the scriptures. Not a single one of us can stand before him without deserving judgment. Indeed, we are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. Angry because we have brought corruption to his good creation. We have brought slander to his name. We have taken something beautiful, something wonderful, and being made in his image and turned it on its head. We have taken the world and pillaged it. We have spilt the blood of the weak, the blood of the just, and the blood of the innocent. We have done it. What more can we say in response to our own guilt? Shall any of us stand before the fury of righteous God when there is nothing but unrighteousness to show on our own behalf? Shall any of us dare to stand before the incorruptible one and declare him to be unjust for his judgment against us? For his righteous indignation over our sin? Shall any one of us stand with our fist held, clenched against the awesome Lord of all? And yet, despite the absurdity of it, we have done it and we still do it. We are like the men of Sodom who have been blinded by a glorious light and yet grope in the darkness for our own affections and desires. We are like those who, instead of trembling before the might of God, have turned aside from him. And to the prophets we have said, how dare you judge us? And to the great one, the mighty Lamb of God, who was led like a sheep to the slaughter, the one who deserved no judgment for sin, we condemned and we killed the Son of God, Christ Jesus. He who told us of our sin, who warned us of the judgment, he who was the Word of God made flesh, we murdered, we slandered, and we crushed, thinking that God was finally silenced. How can any of us be spared knowing that this is the reality which we all must face in our hearts, that we are the ones who place Christ on the cross? How can any of us be spared knowing that we are the wicked whom the scriptures speak of? That we are the ones 
writhing in the pit. Can any of us read the story of the corruption in Sodom and not see it merely a reflection of ourselves? Have we been brought low enough? Do you feel the weight of the world pressing on your shoulders? Do you sense that the judgment is coming? Do you sense the darkness from within and without and find no rest, no peace, and no hope? For in our sin, if we should remain, there is no rest, there is no hope, and there is no peace. For the one in whom we are to find our hope is the one who brings our judgment. The one who can give us rest comes to rouse us. The one who can give us peace comes with a sword. Behold yourself. Behold your sin. Behold your destruction. It comes not at the hand of the person to your left or to your right, or the stranger in the night. It doesn't come from within yourself, who you who dwell in darkness. No, your destruction comes from a righteous and holy God, whose decrees and whose judgments are just and right and good. He comes against all those who break his statutes, his laws, who are found wanting of injustice and unrighteousness. For as it is, it is good for God to judge us, for he can do no other against such a wicked people such as us. Do you feel the darkness? Do you look in on yourself and sense that darkness? Because that's what's in Sodom. That's in the hearts of the men of Sodom. And that's in your heart. How do you escape it? Do you feel it? Do you feel it coming against you right now? The darkness. Are you overwhelmed enough? Do you feel that emptiness sucking you in? Because this is who we are as people. But guess what? That may be the case, but the light of God is stronger than our darkness. And praise God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Christ dispels all the darkness within you. All that pain, all the suffering that you have caused and that you feel goes away because of the gospel. And you who were once in darkness... You're no longer there because of Jesus. We have to be brought low. We have to be reminded of who we are apart from Jesus. We have to be reminded of the darkness within ourselves. These are hard sermons. They're hard passages in the text. When we look at Sodom and Gomorrah and then we remind ourselves we're inhabitants of that city, we were on the outside door trying to break in. That's who we are. Now, in today's text, we didn't really talk much about origins. But we do always have to start there. We start there because we are creating the image of God. 
Each and every one of us is created in the image of God. And because of that, when we are created, we have intrinsic worth and value. And God looks at that and it is good. The problem, however, and this is what we see today, is the fall. The problem is that every single one of us is in that void. Every single one of us has sinned against a holy and righteous God, and at the end of eternity, guess who's going to be standing there? God with that sword. The issue isn't that you're going to judge yourself. The issue is not that you are going to be judged by your sin even. The issue is God is righteous, and that is a good thing. It is good for God to be righteous. So how do we no longer become inhabitants of Sodom? How do we no longer become vessels of destruction? How do we become righteous if all that is within us is darkness? We can't do it ourselves. Because even if the light were to shine on us, guess what happens? We still grope in the darkness. We still try to find the door so that we can break in and do what we want with our affections. It's not enough to be shown. We must be declared righteous. And we must have our hearts made new. And that is done through redemption. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And guess what happens? The man who came, who lived, who died, who rose again. The man that we nailed to the cross. He has risen. And through his life... And death and resurrection, we are made new if we have faith. Faith. That's it. That in the end, when you get to the other side, it's not going to be that God is keeping a tally of all the times you did right and all the times you've done wrong. Guess what? The tally on the right is going to be far worse. No, what he's going to look at is, did you believe that Jesus was enough? And then did you follow as best as you could. His righteousness is yours. His righteousness. It's not yours. It's His. And you get to partake. And that means that the redemption that comes for us means that we can leave the city of destruction and we can walk toward the glorious city of God. And guess what? You're going to stumble. You're going to mess up. I know I do. But luckily, it's not my righteousness. It's God's righteousness. Given to me. Given to you through Jesus. And in the end, glory is what awaits you and I. Glory. When all there was was a void. When all there was was a disconnection between light and darkness. You're going to be so overwhelmed with light you could float. You're going to be so overwhelmed with the glory of God that you will be able to keep reaching forever and ever and never get to the end of it. That's where we're going. When for the first time, you will realize what it means to no longer really be that child of darkness and all the guilt is wiped away. We're getting there. By God's grace, we're getting there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because you remind us exactly who we are apart from you. And you remind us that it is not our responsibility to save ourselves, but that you have offered salvation and that you have offered us the light in the darkness. And all we have to do is hold fast. 
to trust in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from our sins, who saves us from the wrath that we deserve, who saves us from the second death, and who gives us life eternal with our God who is so glorious and so wonderful and so powerful. Lord, give us hearts for you. Give us all we can to glorify you because you are worthy. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us of who we are in the fall. But we thank you so much more for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to remind us you have done it. You have saved. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.